Section 29 of Expository Thoughts on the Gospel of St. John, Volume 1, by J. C. Ryle. Chapter 6, verses 35 to 40. Christ the Bread of Life, None Cast Out, The Father's Will About All Who Come to Christ. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne. John, chapter 6, verses 35 to 40. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. But I say unto you, that ye also have seen me, and believe not. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me that of all which he hath given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that every one who seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Three of our Lord Jesus Christ's great sayings are strung together like pearls in this passage. Each of them ought to be precious to every true Christian. All taken together, they form a mine of truth, into which he that searches need never search in vain. We have, first, in these verses, a saying of Christ about himself. We read that Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. Our Lord would have us know that he himself is the appointed food of man's soul. The soul of every man is naturally starving and famished through sin. Christ is given by God the Father to be the satisfier, the reliever, and the physician of man's spiritual need. In him and his mediatorial office, in him and his atoning death, in him and his priesthood, in him and his grace, love, and power, in him alone will empty souls find their wants supplied. In him there is life. He is the bread of life. With what divine and perfect wisdom this name is chosen. Bread is necessary food. We can manage tolerably well without many things on our table, but not without bread. So it is with Christ. We must have Christ, or die in our own sins. Bread is food that suits all. Some cannot eat meat, some cannot eat vegetables. But all like bread. It is food both for the queen and the pauper. So it is with Christ. He is just the Saviour that meets the wants of every class. Bread is food that we need daily. Other kinds of food we take, perhaps only occasionally. But we want bread every morning and evening in our lives. So it is with Christ. There is no day in our lives but we need His blood, His righteousness, His intercession, and His grace. Well may He be called the Bread of Life. Do we know anything of spiritual hunger? Do we feel anything of craving and emptiness in conscience, heart, and affections? Let us distinctly understand that Christ alone can relieve and supply us, and that it is His office to relieve. We must come to Him by faith. We must believe on Him and commit our souls into His hands. So coming, He pledges His royal word we shall find lasting satisfaction both for time and eternity. It is written, he that cometh unto me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. 
we have secondly in these verses a saying of christ about those who come to him we read that jesus said him that cometh to me i will in no wise cast out what does coming mean it means that movement of the soul which takes place when a man feeling his sins and finding out that he cannot save himself hears of christ applies to christ trusts in christ lays hold on christ and leans all his weight on christ for salvation when this happens a man is said in scripture language to come to christ what did our lord mean by saying i will in no wise cast him out he meant that he will not refuse to save any one who comes to him no matter what he may have been his past sins may have been very great his present weakness and infirmity may be very great but does he not come to christ by faith then christ will receive him graciously pardon him freely place him in the number of his dear children and give him everlasting life these are golden words indeed they have smoothed down many a dying pillow and calmed many a troubled conscience let them sink down deeply into our memories and abide there continually a day will come when flesh and heart shall fail and the world can help us no more happy shall we be in that day if the spirit witnesses with our spirit that we have really come to christ we have lastly in these verses a saying of christ about the will of his father twice over come the solemn words this is the will of him that sent me once we are told that it is his will that every one that seeth the son may have everlasting life once we are told it is his will that of all which he hath given to christ he shall lose nothing we are taught by these words that christ has brought into the world a salvation open and free to every one our lord draws a picture of it from the story of the brazen serpent by which bitten israelites in the wilderness were healed every one that chose to look at the brazen serpent might live just in the same way everyone who desires eternal life may look at christ by faith and have it freely there is no barrier no limit no restriction the terms of the gospel are wide and simple everyone may look and live we are taught furthermore that christ will never allow any soul that is committed to him to be lost and cast away he will keep it safe from grace to glory in spite of the world the flesh and the devil not one bone of his mystical body shall ever be broken not one lamb of his flock shall ever be left behind in the wilderness he will raise to glory in the last day the whole flock entrusted to his charge and not one shall be found missing let the true christian feed on the truths contained in this passage and thank god for them christ the bread of life christ the receiver of all who come to him christ the preserver of all believers christ is for every man who is willing to believe on him and christ is the eternal possession of all who so believe surely this is glad tidings and good news notes john chapter six verses thirty five to forty verse thirty five jesus said i am the bread of life in this verse our lord begins to speak in the first person henceforth in this discourse we hear directly of i and me no less than thirty-five times he drops all further reserve as to his meaning and tells the jews plainly i am the bread of life the true bread from heaven the bread of god which coming down from heaven giveth life to the world the bread of life means the spiritual bread which conveys life to the soul that living bread which does not merely feed the body like common bread 
but supplies eternal sustenance and nourishment to the eternal soul. It is like the water of life, Revelation chapter 22, verse 17, and living water, John chapter 4, verse 10. The reasons why Christ calls himself bread appear to be such as these. He is intended to be to the soul what bread is to the body, its food. Bread is necessary food. When men can afford to eat nothing else, they eat bread. It is food that all need. The king and the pauper both eat bread. It is food that suits all, old and young, weak and strong, all like bread. It is the most nourishing kind of food. Nothing does so much good and is so indispensable to bodily health as bread. It is food that we need daily and are never tired of. Morning and night we go on all our lives eating bread. The application of these various points to Christ is too plain to need any explanation. One great general lesson is doubtless intended to be drawn from Christ's selection of bread as an emblem of himself. He is given to be the great supply of all the wants of men's souls. Whatever our spiritual necessity may be, however starving, famished, weak, and desperate our condition, there is enough in Christ and to spare. He is bread. Rollock remarks that as soon as the slightest spiritual desire is manifested by any one, however ignorant and weak, he should be at once directed to Christ. It is what our Lord himself did, as soon as the Jews said, Lord, evermore give us this bread, he cried, I am the bread of life. He never quenched the smoking flax. He that cometh, hunger, believeth, thirst. The words coming and believing in this sentence appear to mean very nearly one and the same thing. To come to Christ is to believe on Him, and to believe on Him is to come to Him. Both expressions mean that act of the soul whereby, under a sense of its sins and necessity, it applies to Christ, lays hold on Christ, trusts itself to Christ, casts itself on Christ. Coming is the soul's movement towards Christ. Believing is the soul's venture on Christ. If there is any difference, it is that coming is the first act of the soul when it is taught by the Holy Ghost, and that believing is a continued act or habit which never ends. No man comes who does not believe, and all who come go on believing. When our Lord says, shall never hunger, and shall never thirst, he does not mean that a believer on Christ shall no longer feel any want or emptiness or deficiency within him. This would not be correct. The best of believers will often cry, like St. Paul, O oh, wretched man that I am, Romans chapter 7, verse 24. The man who hungers and thirsts after righteousness is blessed. Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. What our Lord does mean is that faith in Christ shall supply a man's soul with a peace and satisfaction that shall never be entirely taken from him, that shall endure for ever. The man who eats and drinks material food shall soon be hungry and thirsty as ever, but the man who comes to Christ by faith gets hold of something that is an everlasting possession. He shall never die of spiritual famine and perish for want of soul nourishment. He may have his low feelings at seasons. He may even lose his sense of pardon and his enjoyment of religion. But once in Christ by faith, he shall never be cast away and starved in hell. He shall never die in his sins. A. Let us note in this verse how simple are the figures by which our Lord brings his own sufficiency within the reach of man's understanding. He calls himself bread. It was an idea that even the poorest here could understand. He that would do good to the poor need never be ashamed of using the simplest and most familiar illustrations. b. 
Let us note that faith is a movement of the soul. Its first action is coming to Christ. Its subsequent life is a constant daily repetition of its first action. To tell people to sit still and wait is poor theology. We should bid them arise and come. C. Let us note that coming to Christ is the true secret of obtaining soul satisfaction and inward peace. Until we take that step our consciences are never easy. We hunger and thirst and find no relief. D. Let us note that true believers shall never be altogether cast off and forsaken of God. The man that comes to Christ shall never hunger nor thirst. The text is one among many proofs of the perseverance of the saints. E. Let us note, finally, how simple are the terms of the gospel. It is but coming and believing that Christ asks at our hands. The most ignorant, the most sinful, the most hardened, need not despair. They have but to come and believe. Luther, quoted by Besser, remarks on this verse, These are indeed clear and precious words, which it is not enough for us merely to know. We must turn them to account, and say, Upon these words I will go to sleep at night and get up in the morning. Leaning on them I will sleep and wake, and work and travel. For though everything were to go to ruin, and though father and mother, emperor and pope, princes and lords, all forsook me, even though Moses could not help me, and I had only Christ to look to, yet he will help me. For his words are sure, and he says, Hold fast by me, come thou to me, and thou shalt live. The meaning of these words is, that whoever can believe on that one man who is called Jesus Christ shall be satisfied and cannot suffer either hunger or thirst. Verse 36 But I said, Ye also have seen me and believed not. It is not quite clear what our Lord refers to in this verse when he says, I said. Some think that he is referring specially to his own words in the 26th verse, you seek me, not because ye saw the miracles, etc. Others think that he refers generally to the testimony he had frequently borne against the unbelief of the Jewish people in almost every place where he preached. It seems to me most natural to connect the verse with the saying of the Jews in the thirtieth verse. They had there said, What sign showest thou then, that we may see and believe thee? Why should we not suppose our Lord in this verse to take up that saying and reply, you talk of seeing and believing. I tell you again, and have long told you, that ye have seen me, and yet you do not believe. The connecting link with the preceding verse appears to be something of this kind. I am quite aware that I speak in vain to many of you of the bread of life and of believing, for I have said often, and now say it again, that many of you have both seen me and my miracles, and yet do not believe. Nevertheless, I am not discouraged." I know, in spite of your unbelief, that some will be saved. The unbelief of human nature is painfully exhibited in this verse. Some could even see and hear Christ himself while he was on earth, and yet remain unbelieving. Surely we have no right to be surprised if we find like unbelief now. Men may actually see Christ with their bodily eyes and have no faith. Verse 37. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. The connection of this verse with the preceding one seems to be this. Your unbelief does not move me or surprise me. I foresaw it and have been aware of it. Nevertheless, your unbelief will not prevent God's purposes taking effect. Some will believe, though you remain unbelieving. Everything that the Father gives me will come unto me in due time. Believe and be saved. 
in spite of your unbelief all my sheep shall sooner or later come to me by faith and be gathered within my fold i see your unbelief with sorrow but not with anxiety and surprise i am prepared for it i know that you cannot alter god's purposes and in accordance with those purposes a people will come to me though you do not luther quoted by besser supposes our lord to say this sermon shall not on your account be of none effect and remain without fruit if you will not another will and if you do not believe yet another does the english language fails to give the full sense of the greek in this sentence the literal meaning of the greek is not all persons whom the father giveth shall come but everything the whole thing it is not a masculine plural but a neuter singular the idea is either that the whole mystical body the company of my believing people shall come to me or else every single part or jot or member of my mystical body shall come to me and not one be found missing at last we learn from these words the great and deep truth of god's election and appointment to eternal life of a people out of this world the father from all eternity has given to the son a people to be his own peculiar people the saints are given to christ by the father as a flock which Christ undertakes to save completely and to present completely at the last day. See John chapter 17, verses 2, 6, 9, 11, 12, and chapter 18, verse 9. However wicked men may abuse this doctrine, it is full of comfort to a humble believer. He did not begin the work of his salvation. He was given to Christ by the Father, by an everlasting covenant. We learn from these words the great mark of God's elect, whom he has given to Christ. They all come to Christ by faith. It is useless for any one to boast of his election, unless he comes to Christ by faith. Until a man comes humbly to Jesus and commits his soul to him as a believer, we have no dependable evidence of the man's election. Beza remarks, Faith in Christ is a certain testimony of our election, and consequently of our future glorification. Ferris says, Cleaving to Christ by faith, thou art sure of thy predestination. We learn from these words the irresistible power of God's electing grace. All who are given to Christ shall come to him. No obstacle, no difficulty, no power of the world, the flesh and the devil can prevent them. Sooner or later they will break through all and surmount all. If given, they will come. To ministers the words are full of comfort. Him that cometh unto me I will in no wise cast out. These words declare Christ's willingness to save every one that comes to him. There is an infinite readiness in Christ to receive, pardon, justify, and glorify sinners. The expression, I will in no wise cast out, implies this. It is a very powerful form of negation. So far from casting out the man that comes to me, I will receive him with joy when he comes. I will not refuse him on account of past sins. I will not cast him off again because of present weakness and infirmities. I will keep him to the end by my grace. I will confess him before my Father in the judgment day, and glorify him for ever. In short, I will do the very opposite of casting him out. The distinction between the language of this clause of the text and that of the former clause should be carefully noticed. They who shall come to Christ are that whole thing which the Father gives. But it is each individual man that comes, of whom Jesus says, I will in no wise cast him out. To cast out of the synagogue, to cut off from the congregation of Israel, to shut out of the camp, as the leper was shut out, 
Leviticus chapter 13, verse 46, were ideas with which all Jews were familiar. Our Lord seems to say, I will do the very opposite of all this. A. Clark thinks that the idea is that of a poor person coming to a rich man's house for shelter and relief, who is kindly treated and not cast out. But may we not suppose, after all, that the latent thought is that of the man fleeing to the city of refuge, according to the law of Moses, who, once admitted, is safe and not cast out? Numbers chapter 35, verses 11 and 12. We learn from these words that one point we should look to is whether we do really come to Christ. Our past lives may have been very bad. Our present faith may be very weak. Our repentance and prayers may be very imperfect and poor. Our knowledge of religion may be very scanty. But do we come to Christ? That is the question. If so, the promise belongs to us. Christ will not cast us out. We may remind him boldly of his own word. We learn from these words that Christ's offers to sinners are wide, broad, free, unlimited, and unconditional. We must take care that we do not spoil and hamper them by narrow statements. God's election must never be thrust nakedly at unconverted sinners in preaching the gospel. It is a point with which at present they have nothing to do. No doubt it is true that none will come to Christ but those who are given to him by the Father, but who are those that are so given we cannot tell, and must not attempt to define. All we have to do is to invite every one, without exception, to come to Christ, and to tell men that every one who does come to Christ shall be received and saved. To this point we must carefully stick. Rollock observes how close this glorious promise stands to our Lord's words about God's election and predestination. Election should never be stated nakedly and baldly, without reminding those who hear it, of Christ's infinite willingness to receive and save all. Hutcheson remarks, Saints do indeed oft-times complain of casting off, but they are the words of sense and not of faith. They may seem to be cast off, when really it is not so. Verse 38. For I came down, not mine own will, etc. The meaning of this verse appears to be as follows. I did not become man and enter this world to do anything of my own independent will and volition, and without reference to the will of my Father. On the contrary, I have come to carry out His will. As God, my will is in entire harmony and unity with my Father's will, because I and my Father are one. As man, I have no other will and desire than to do that which is in entire accordance with the will of Him who has sent me to be the mediator and friend of sinners. What the Father's will about man is, our Lord goes on immediately to state in the two following verses. One part of the Father's will is that nothing should be lost that he has given to the Son. That will Christ came to carry out and accomplish. Another part of the Father's will is that every one who trusts in Christ may be saved. That will, again, Christ came to carry out and accomplish. The verse before us and the two following are closely connected and should be looked at as one great thought. It was the Father's will that free salvation by Christ should be brought near and within the reach of every one, and it was also His will that every believer in Christ should be completely and finally saved. To work out and accomplish this will of His Father was Christ's object in coming into the world. The expression, I came down from heaven, is a strong proof of the pre-existence of Christ. It could not possibly be said of any prophet or apostle that He came down from heaven, it is a heavy blow at the Socinian theory that Christ was nothing more than a man. 
Verse 39. This is the Father's will, which hath sent me. In this verse and the following, Christ explains fully what was the Father's will concerning the Son's mission into the world. It was that he should receive all and lose none, that any one might come to him, and that no comer should be lost. It is a cheering and pleasant thought, that free and full salvation, and the final perseverance of believers, should be so expressly declared to be the will of the Father. Of all, given, lose nothing. Here again there is the same form of speech, as in the thirty-seventh verse, literally rendered the sentence would be, That of the whole thing which he has given me, I should not lose anything out of it. The losing must necessarily mean that I should let nothing be taken away by the power of Satan, and allow nothing to come to ruin by its own inherent weakness. The general sense of the sentence must be, that I should allow no member of my mystical body to be lost. We have in these words the doctrine of the final perseverance of true believers. It seems hard to imagine stronger words than these to express the doctrine. It is the Father's will that no one whom he has given to Christ should be lost. His will must surely take effect. True believers may err and fail in many things, but they shall never finally be cast away. The will of God the Father and the power of Christ the Son are both engaged on their side. We have in these words abundant comfort for all fearful and faint-hearted believers. Let such remember that if they come to Christ by faith, they have been given to Christ by the Father, and if given by the Father to Christ, it is the Father's will that they should never be cast away. Let them lean back on this thought, when cast down and disquieted. It is the Father's will that I should not be lost. Should raise it up again at the last day. We have in these words the Father's will that all Christ's members shall have a glorious resurrection. They shall not only not be lost and cast away while they live, they shall be raised again to glory after they die. Christ will not only justify and pardon, keep and sanctify, He will do even more. He will raise them up at the last day to a life of glory. It is the Father's will that He should do so. The bodies of the saints are provided for no less than their souls. The idea of some writers, which Bullinger mentions with some favor, that the last day means the day of each believer's death, and the raising his translation in the hour of death to paradise, seems to me utterly destitute of foundation. The words before us are a strong encouragement for the first resurrection, as a peculiar privilege of believers. It is said here that believers shall be raised again, as a special honor and mercy conferred upon them, Yet it is no less clearly stated in the fifth chapter, verse 29, that all that are in the graves shall come forth, both good and bad. It follows, therefore, that there is a resurrection of which saints alone are to be the partakers, distinct from the resurrection of the wicked. What can this be but the first resurrection? Romans chapter 20, verse 5. It must, however, in fairness be remembered that resurrection is sometimes spoken of in Scripture as if it were the peculiar privilege of believers and a thing in which the wicked have no part. In the famous chapter in Corinthians, it is clear that the resurrection of the saints is the only thing in St. Paul's mind. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 That the wicked will be raised again, as well as the righteous, is clearly asserted in several places, but it is sometimes a thing kept in the background. Verse 40 This is the will of him that sent me. These words are repeated in this verse to show that it is no less the Father's will that Christ should receive sinners than that Christ should preserve saints. 
Both things are alike the purpose and intention of God. Every one which seeth the Son and believeth life. These words mean that every one, without exception, who by faith looks to Christ and trusts in Him for salvation, is allowed by God the Father's appointment to have part in the salvation Christ has provided. There is no barrier, difficulty, or objection. Every one is the expression. No one can say he is excluded. Seeing and believing are the only things required. No one can say that the terms are too hard. Does he see and believe? Then he may have everlasting life. The expression, seeth the sun, in this sentence, must evidently mean more than mere seeing with bodily eyes. It is the looking with faith at Christ. See John chapter 12, verse 45, where the same Greek word is used. It is such a look as that of the Israelites, who looked at the brazen serpent, and, looking, were healed. See John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, and Numbers chapter 21, verse 9. I believe that this was in our Lord's mind when he spake the words of this verse. Just as every serpent-bitten Israelite might look at the brazen serpent, and, as soon as he looked, was cured, so every sin-stricken man may look to Christ and be saved. I will raise him up at the last day. These words are repeated, I believe, in order to make it sure that a glorious resurrection shall be the portion of every one that only looks at Christ and believes, as well as of those who enjoy the assurance that they are given to Christ and shall never be cast away. The humblest believer shall be raised again by Christ at the first resurrection, and eternally glorified, just as certainly as the oldest saint in the family of God. Steer remarks, This raising up at the last day, twice emphatically affirmed, points out to us the final goal of salvation and preserving power, after the attainment of which there is no more danger of perishing or losing again that eternal life which is now, the body being raised, consummate. Let us mark what abundant comfort there is in this verse for all doubting, trembling sinners who feel their sins and yet fancy there is no hope for them. Let such observe that it is the will of God the Father that every one who looks at Christ by faith may have everlasting life. It would be impossible to open a wider door. Men look and live. The will of God is on their side. Calvin remarks on this verse, The way to obtain salvation is to obey the gospel of Christ. If it is the will of God that those whom he has elected shall be saved, and if in this manner he ratifies and executes his eternal decrees, whoever he be that is not satisfied with Christ, but indulges in curious inquiries about eternal predestination, such a person desires to be saved contrary to the purposes of God. They are madmen who seek their own salvation, or that of others, in the whirlpool of predestination, not keeping the way of salvation which is exhibited to them. To every man, therefore, his faith is a sufficient attestation of the eternal predestination of God. End of section 29